So today, ladies and gentlemen, um, we've got an interesting conversation we've been wanting to have. Um, our friends at The Holy Post, which is another a, a podcast that many of you are familiar with, Sky, one of the co-hosts has been on our show and vice versa uh, several different times. Um, they've done, they've been doing some really good work on, uh, racism and its historical antecedents and, um, particularly, and I knew, I knew a Phil Vischer, right? Phil is the guy behind VeggieTales. So anybody who had a vaguely, you know, Christian experience <laughs> or church experience of 20 years ago, you know, this was like, this was what you did um in kids ministry i mean it was a it was a huge deal so i knew phil visher the name that way um he started the podcast with sky man maybe seven eight years ago uh, they were one of the first you know to kind of, yeah they were the ogs absolutely and and phil has taken on this sort of interesting role in these days as kind of a, a, a cultural historian, a popular level cultural historian on um, race issues and the church's complicity in American racism. And um, we're going to, we're going to, so we wanted to talk to him about that. Um, he, he produced a video that we're, that Tim is going to put in the show notes um, about what, what, what has happened to bring us to where we are now? What is, what, how did we get here? Um, really very informative set of videos. If you just type Phil Vischer into YouTube, you're going to get those Damn. videos and they've done some stuff on their, on their podcast about this. So we, so in light of the presidential debate that we just watched and the kind of, um, re-engaging of discussions around white supremacy, we thought, Hey, this is, We'd, we'd love some of his perspective on this because very often, I, at least for me, I live in sort of an intellectual or uh, historical vacuum, right? I think this is kind of the first time we're having these conversations and uh, I'm just not aware of all of the factors that brought us to this point. So um, so anyway, I mean, we're, we're kind of excited about that. Tim, I know you had some thoughts too about why we wanted to talk to Phil. Yeah, well, I have really appreciated um, the episodes that they did on their podcast and his videos as well, because they are, they don't, I think Phil does a really good job of being um, data driven and not emotion driven. Mm -hmm. And these arguments often become, for great reason, become emotionally charged and um, they turn into arguments and they turn into um me versus you, us versus them mentality, which uh, is never helpful. And he does a really good job of just bringing in data. Here's a timeline of events. Here's how each event fed into the next. And I think it's really, really helpful. And I think that the church uh, should, you know, at, we're in such a cycle of, um, like I talked to my college students, like, you know, when we were, when I was younger, when I was a kid, <laughs> uh, I love that you did that to them. <laughs> we get the, we got the news, you know, at like 5 PM and 11 PM on, and then, but, or from a newspaper that came every morning. So there was a, a loose 24 hour news cycle. Mm -hmm. And cause we didn't have cell phones and now it's a 30 second news cycle. Like, you know, yeah. what's happening in the world, anywhere in the world, the moment it happens. Yeah. 
such as this morning, uh, the president said that he has COVID and we all knew about it immediately. And, um, it changed that amount of information constantly coming in. Doesn't let you sit with anything for very long. And I think the church as the news cycle continually tumbles and brings new things in things like George Floyd and some of the racial unease that's going on in our country starts to get pushed back and out of the conversation. And I think the church needs to keep having this conversation. So I I definitely was pushing to have this conversation. Um, So you can direct the emails to me at mike at voxpodcast.com. Yes, I did. Yes, I very clearly did not want to talk about this. Um, No, no, but 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 you know, the day after the debates, Tim was just like, "Dude, we gotta we gotta talk more about this." And and you know, Phil's first response was, "Why do you want another white guy?" And we said, "Well, it's the same reason your video had appeal. Um, Some people are only going to listen to other white people, and we hate that. Um, And unfortunately, it seems to be true." And so, and white men need to be speak. We have a role to play in speaking out against this and being part of fixing the problem that, you know, yeah, white men built. Yeah, yeah, yep. And uh, so anyway, and and Phil, it's 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 awesome because Phil got interrupted sort of part way through the interview, um, and so so the the beginning is the uh, the three of us, Tim and I. Phil talking and then the ending it's just uh, Tim and Phil which let's be honest is far more interesting and um, and so anyway hope you enjoy it um, we'll link all the stuff in the show notes but it was very um, this was very very in- interesting helpful and convicting perspective yeah and I think it's if we if we can encourage uh, if this is something, how do you encourage people in this? If you, if we can encourage you to listen uh, and try to hear the data and that kind of stuff without reacting immediately, and just if you can hold a posture of listening, um, I think that's helpful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- you know, to me, this isn't about being woke. This is about being biblical, and. Yeah. Uh, um, the command and the, and the more we're in the Sermon on the Mount, the, the more the commands to love your neighbor, to bless your enemy, to all of those, I mean, not retaliate. I mean, all of that stuff, this is where it plays out. Or this is one of the places it's playing out these days. And so um, my Jesus following for me leads me into these conversations in ways yeah. that I wouldn't naturally go, you know, Um and, uh, and so anyway, we just thought it, it would be an interesting conversation, and it certainly has been that. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, take care, friends, and let us know what you think, as always. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Vox Podcast, and per Tim Stafford's request, I'm going to start off today with a little skit scat. You're welcome. Yep. That was worth it. My son, Nate, has taught me these different ways of talking that are very big among the kids now, 
and evidently and the cat is one of them well yeah just used kind of in in weird situations like what do you think of that and it's just perfect so i'm gonna use today some like like for instance i mean and and we're gonna welcome our distinguished guest here shortly but there are some phrases i need to translate first all right the first phrase is um sus which means suspect or okay. questionable okay sketch is a is a synonym for sus which means sketchy or suspect um low-key sus is a phrase is a is a verbal phrase that my son uses with great frequency to describe something that isn't overtly questioned but upon further examination it becomes sketchy all right so low-key sus is key and then i didn't know this but if you stand something that means you love it right did you know this no well i mean all the other ones are abbreviations of the original word except for that well i'm sure stan is something and it stands for something but i stand isn't it, isn't it understand is that what it is i don't I, know I, I don't know i'm the i'm the i'm the guest i'm just you're the in here i'm this very special <laughs> special guest and 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 though we stand you i don't know that i trust you for the etymology of the teenage words yeah. that i am discussing <laughs> and what's the hip way to say etymology yes eddie eddie yeah, yeah. I, I don't stand your eddie yeah exactly <laughs> there it is there you go this, be, this should be like we if we do a, a like a pdf handout of the uh, sermon on the mount stuff because it was so much information we can do an appendix. Yeah. Part of the appendix should be, hey, Gen Xers, just so you can low key keep sus. With the herd. Yeah. That was yeah. low that was low key sus right pick there. Pick up pick <laughs> it up in our pen. <laughs> yes, and then we'll stand it. Our guest today is a highly distinguished podcaster mm. who has has and we all know this to be true personally carried the holy post podcast on his singular shoulders <laughs> for seven or eight years eight um sky jathani is the faint echo uh to phil vischer's voice mm -hmm. and he's um, my he's my body man he's yes. there when i need lip balm when i need uh you know a smoothie that's primarily what he's there for perfect and there are some yeah. smoothies that can do both be a smoothie and be lip balm. You have to be careful, but I stand wow. that. Okay. Now, yep, it, it can be low-key low sus. It's a, little, it's a little waxy, but it's great for the lips. <laughs> so, so Phil Vischer has become a friend. Um, if you've listened to our podcast for any length of time, um, we're big fans of the Holy Post and uh, grateful for Sky and their work. And Phil... Phil's got an interesting history that if you want to speak more on, you can, but Phil recently did this. Uh, and, 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 and if you listen to the Holy post, this is no surprise. They, they, they deal very with very relevant topics and um, it's, they do a great job with it, but Phil produced and starred in and wrote um, a video that went viral from the Holy post page on race and um and it was it was quite good and very enlightening and informative and why, why thank um, you yeah you know it was really it was really excellent i mean 
And, and, you know, for those wondering why there's still a place for middle-aged white dudes to talk about race in America, mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. is really exhibit A. This was a guy who's known in the Christian community as as somebody who you, you're not going to accuse Phil Vischer of being out there um, until you get to know him. And then that is quite literally the only way to describe him. But... Um, here's a guy who has a platform and authority who uses this to really shed light on stuff. Some of that stuff I'd never heard before. And so we're excited to have Phil, uh, on Vox. Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank my you. Friend I've been t- listening to the podcast, not mine. I have to listen to mine. It's required. <laughs> I've been listening to your podcast for, I don't know, uh, two years, three years now, quite a yep. while. Yeah, and it's really interesting, and I, I I love. I think it's complementary to what we're doing because um, you're you're doing different topics with the same kind of approach and mindset. So I really enjoy bouncing back and forth between what we're doing and what you're doing, and I find them both helpful. Well, thank you very much, Phil. We're 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 very grateful for that, and and certainly, you know there there need to be more bald people in podcasting. And so we yes. are grateful that you, that you stand us I, and we stand you in a very non low key sus way. I have hair. I assume you're speaking of sky. Yeah. Well, yes, yes. That hair is fled long ago. Now. Yeah. Phil, you're hanging on. <laughs> I'm hanging uh, on. Um, so I, I, I want to, I want to encourage people. If you just type in to YouTube, like Phil Vischer race, this we'll is put the, it in our, we'll put it in the notes too. Oh, smart. This is the okay. video that will come up. And, and I'm just going to recap it because you had your chance to sound smart. And so I want, I want to okay, just sound smart it. by echoing so you. Mike's version of sounding smart is recapping your smarts. Correct. <laughs> got it. Well, Correct. well, I got the data for the video, the first video from a class my brother taught. So I recapped what my brother researched <laughs> to make me sound smart. So you see, smart genius. doesn't have to come from you. That's smart, genius. You, you pay it forward. You pay it forward. Okay, that's genius. Thank you. Um, but but so so Phil starts out by just noting that I'm going to quote your podcast back to you. Um, that uh, black households make one tenth or have one tenth of the income. Household wealth. Household household wealth yes. is what I was saying. Yes, sixty percent of the household income, ten percent of the household wealth. Yes. And you ask this sort of provocative question, like, well, how did this happen? And then in that video, you trace, I mean, I mean, really, or your brother, and clearly you're probably the better looking of the two. So they're going to put you on the video. I he's totally not, he's understand not bad. that. He's not bad looking. Well, we'll see. He's not, he's not bad looking. Well, then where is he? Where is he? Uh, he's the dean of a law school. So oh, he has oh. a very important job. Oh, to so he's do. really, yeah. he's re, he, re, he does real stuff. He does real stuff, not this. <laughs> so that guy channeling Phil, now me channeling Phil's brother through Phil, went through just this the history of Jim Crow laws and and home ownership and what happened when the suburbs started developing and the way black families were excluded from that and the way jobs moved out there and then the whole war on drugs and the criminal justice system. I mean, it was it was not it was literally nothing but facts. And uh, then you invited you, the goal, the only and then the only thing you asked people to do was care. That mm-hmm. was it. You it, it literally ended. I'm asking you to do one thing to care. 
Um, I wanted to just ask you how, what was the response to that video? Because mm-hmm. I don't know. It seems like uh, one part of me says, oh, well, that should be, that should be relatively non-controversial. These are, these are true things. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm imagining though that wasn't universal. Uh, initially, it was pretty universally positive, you know, and here's the thing. If something goes viral, because I'm like, okay, it was a podcast. We did it as a podcast episode first three years ago, and maybe, I don't know, 30,000 people listened to it. And the response to that was all positive. And so I think I'm going to make this more shareable. I'll squish it down into a video that people can just, you know, click their share button on Facebook and boom, then it, it gets shared. And uh, so initially it was still kind of our circle that, that likes us and is with us and they were 100% positive and they start sharing it and then they start sharing it and then they start sharing it. And then the few people start popping up saying, I don't like this. I don't yeah. like what you're saying right. and here's why. And then you discover there are a lot of people who have an ideological commitment that makes it necessary for them to say either A, this is not a problem or B, even if it is, it's not my fault and mm. I don't have to do anything about it. Mm. You know, and it's interesting to try to unpack what's the, the ideology behind that. Um, and some of it is just purely now partisan politics, you know, that I'm a Republican and Democrats say we're supposed to care about that. So I'm not going to care about, you know, it's the same thing yeah. with, with climate change. You know, my ideology, my ideological identity says, I have to reject what you're saying I'm supposed to be concerned about. And we do it on both sides. So there was some of that. Uh, there's some people just don't like uh, or, or think you're missing out. They've come up with a reason why, you know, inner cities are the way they are. Mm. Here's the reason why, because people are irresponsible. People who mm. live in inner cities are irresponsible. And it's all about personal responsibility. Other people would come back and say, you completely skip the part, which is why partly why I did a follow-up video either that fatherlessness has ruined African-American communities or welfare support has ruined African-American communities. So, mm-hmm. and, and it, how you suggest solutions varies wildly depending on what you believe is the cause of the problem. Because mm-hmm. if you believe mm-hmm. government support is the cause of the problem, you are certainly not gonna vote in favor of anything that comes from the government as part of the solution. Right. And if you believe fatherlessness is the entirety of the problem, you know, then the only solution is to tell those people to get married and right. be responsible. So don't ask me to do anything else because if they don't do their part, I can't help. So, so many of, of the uh, alternate, and that's kind of why I wanted to get just facts out there. Because mm-hmm. if you say, you know, like in the, in the second video I did, if you say that the whole problem is welfare, let's look at the state of the black community before and after the 1960s and Mm -hmm. see, you know, was it way better and did it get way worse? And if you can support that, okay. If you can't support that, are you willing to consider that maybe your premise is wrong? Mm-hmm. You know, and mm-hmm. there, and that's, and, and it's typically there's truth in a lot of these ideas. Yes, fatherlessness is a problem. Yes, there was a clause in most welfare policies in the 1960s called the no man in the house clause that if there was a man, an able bodied man living in the house, you were ineligible for food stamps, you were ineligible for housing support. You know, you could have a hundred able bodied women in the house, but one able bodied man disqualified you for all of the programs. 
And so that that put African-American fathers in a position where if they couldn't get work because they didn't have the right skills because all the factories had closed, they couldn't put food on the table for their kids. The only way their kids could get the benefit is literally if they walked out the door. So Mm. obviously that's going to have an effect. Um, But is that the entirety of the story? And is it also a mark of irresponsibility? And that's where you really want to let's figure out what our presuppositions are because they might show some prejudice. Right. And let's look at the data rather than looking at our, our, our prejudice and, and you know, just assuming we heard something on TV and, and that must explain everything. So that's right. 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 That's the goal. How, how do you respond to people? Cause I certainly, I certainly hear this cause you do make the case. I think quite compellingly in video number one, that systemic racism is a thing. It's a real thing. And um, yeah, I right? never use the word systemic racism. Nope, I know. I, I never know. use those words because I, there are certain words and phrases that yep. we have now politicized. Like, you want to hear another one? Yes. Do you have white privilege? Yeah, that's one. Do you have that? Because if you believe there is such a thing, now a half of America has to oppose you while the other half of America applauds you. And so what you, what you discover is that if you use, you know, a phrase like systemic racism has become so politicized that you lose half your audience just by saying it. Right. Yeah. Whether right. or not you can support it, whether or not it. So I, I try to avoid using language where I know half of my audience is going to tune out simply because I said a phrase. Right. Rather than talk about the data that might lead you to say, well, I, maybe there isn't systemic racism now, but there certainly was in the past and mm-hmm. it's still having an impact. So mm-hmm. whether or not there is now, isn't really the point. The yeah. point is, how did we get here? And do I feel any sense of Christian responsibility or Christian hospitality? And do I actually want to help? Do I want to make it better? Yeah. How do you, so, so excellent point. Let's, um, let me rephrase the question. <laughs> yeah. Granted that systemic racism is real. Um, how? <laughs> I didn't say that. Did I say that? I didn't say that. You said that. True, 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 true. Um, uh, how do you respond to people who say, okay, but it's not my fault. I didn't, right. I didn't own slaves. I didn't, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not racist. Right. There's, there's, a, there's a couple ways to go, to go about that one is assuming that you're talking to a christian brother or sister yeah know, let's start let's start there if your neighbor's house is on fire and you didn't do it do you feel like you don't have to do anything because <laughs> we, we spend so much time pointing at the fire saying yeah but i didn't i didn't start it i didn't mm-hmm. you know and people inside the house are yelling help help you know it's like i did not start how is that christian so so many of us are are just are reacting to the notion that we're being blamed for something Mm -hmm. and we don't like to be blamed and then so then we're arguing well is it really my fault that that house is burning and those children are in danger is that i don't feel like just shut up and go get the kids out of the house because it's burning so yeah it also depends on you know and i in my second video i mentioned this that we love to say you know we americans you know won the cold war we americans put a man on the moon you know we did this we did all these wonderful things and then you switch it and say you know we oppressed native americans for hundreds of years it's like no i didn't i didn't do that part it's like we Mm. love we love to take ownership of the good things america has done and then completely deny any ownership 
of the bad things America has done. Mm -hmm. So I just, I don't find that terribly Christian to not want to take responsibility for what is wrong in your own community. And don't we see examples in the scriptures of responsibility or repentance or confession yeah. for the sins of the community, even given by people that didn't commit those sins. Yep. Nehemiah 1, Daniel 9, Daniel confesses the sins of his forefathers. And I've had, you know, and I've used that and people will say, yeah, but that's different because it was Israel and he was a leader that represented Israel. Like, oh, God, why are we, why are we straining at gnats? to avoid mm. needing to help. Right. And I, and I really want to back up and ask that question. Why is it so important to not feel any obligation to help? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, and I honestly don't have an answer. I don't mm. have an answer. It's just, we're, we're, we're so, in, in some cases, it's because of the news we watch, you know, the TV we watch, which cable channel we watch, and people are mad and saying, you know, that, oh, you think white people cause all the problems of the earth, and, and white people are terrible, and white people are evil. It's like, let's just forget about who's to blame, and, you know, and stop just using white to represent everyone who isn't black, because that's dumb. <laughs> let's just, you know, I'm Swedish. Did I, you know, did, are the Swedes, do they have a long history of promoting racism? Eh. Yes, ABBA. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. It yeah. doesn't really matter. America has a long history of racism that has disadvantaged some communities to the advantage of other communities. Mm-hmm. I am part historically of a community that has been advantaged by America's racism, not disadvantaged. So I would like to do some part in offsetting the disadvantages that have been created for some people at the advantage of my own forefathers. Mm-hmm. So, and that's, it, it helped me one day to, to rethink my whole family story through the lens of, you know, for my great grandfather in Toledo, Ohio, as a hothouse farmer, what would his life have been if he was African-American mm-hmm. in, in 1920 in Toledo? Would he have been able to build a successful business? Probably not. And then he sent my grandfather to college. Not a lot of white kids, not a lot of any Americans were going to college in the 1930s because he was able to go to college. He was picked by Firestone for their new executive track for college graduates. That set up a whole career in the tire industry as a successful executive that led my dad to work for him at a big tire company in advertising and fly all over the world and do amazing things. And that led him to buying us a really nice house in Muscatine, Iowa when I was a kid so that when everything blew up when I was nine years old and my dad walked out the door, my parents got divorced, my mom was a single parent living below the poverty line, we had a really nice house that we could sell, use the equity to buy a much smaller house in a much nicer suburb of Chicago where we could all get a great education and be near really, really good opportunity. Um, And so just the difference, you you now retell that story and say, okay, you're African-American at each generation of that story. Mm-hmm. And then you get to where, you know, we're living in poverty, which we did for maybe two years in the 1980s. You don't have any of the assets to give you a second chance. So that's why the home ownership thing was so crucial. And how I tell my story mm-hmm. is like our house that we owned in Muscatine, Iowa in 1980 bought us a second chance. 
Right. Mm. So this is an example of the household yes. wealth. Yes. So when you, so the the average white household has ten times the wealth household wealth of the average black household, specifically because of home ownership. Because home ownership is is by far the number one source of intergenerational wealth transfer in America, and black households generally don't own homes at nearly the rate of white households because we didn't care if they did, so we didn't underwrite black home ownership. We actually discouraged it. And why did why did we encourage white home ownership and discourage black home ownership? Because in the 1930s, we were worried about white people that were poor uh, being too uh, empathetic or sympathetic to communism, to the Russian Revolution. The workers of the world unite and rise up against your oppressors. And we thought, wow, there are a lot of poor white people in America. They might really like communism. This could be a problem. Well, what's the best way to make someone not like communism? Make them a homeowner. If you own property, you don't want to be a communist anymore. So we went out of our way to encourage white people, poor white people, to be able to move up the ladder and own homes because we didn't want them to be communists. Why didn't we want black people to care about not being communists? Because they have no political power. Doesn't matter if they want to be communists. They don't have any political power. So it's, you know, what so much of what we've done, the civil rights movement finally moved, not because suddenly we were compassionate, suddenly Kennedy and, uh, you know, Johnson and those guys were suddenly compassionate where presidents hadn't been before. We finally moved on civil rights because the Soviets were using it to make us look terrible. So the, mm. the Americans are out saying the American way of life is great for everyone. And look how they're treating their own African-American citizens horribly. And that was the impetus to say we have to do something, especially because it's starting to head towards riots. And the more chaos there is in America, which is supposed to be, you know, the shining city on the hill of democracy and freedom that everyone wants. This looks terrible. And, and these you know, countries, especially if they're African countries, African countries looking at America and then looking at the Soviet Union and saying, oh, why do we want the American thing that they treat people terribly? So, you know, you, you have to recognize kind of the motives behind what even the good things we've done aren't always all that good. I don't know if you've ever done something, the right thing for the wrong motive. Never. I don't know if you've ever done that. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people complain <laughs> when when you talk like this. I, I knew that about you. Um, <laughs> That, that I have to reject what you're saying because you're making America sound like a terrible place. Mm, and yeah. America you know, is my home. This is yeah. like, it's everything. It's the best country. My, my father's yeah. died for it. Right, my, yeah. right, right. America is no better than we are. It's no worse than we are. It's no better than we are. So because we are good and bad, we are sinful and virtuous. We are selfish and selfless. So is America. It is impossible for America to be nobler than the people who make it up. And so we just have to have you know, a realistic assessment of our own history, which is a lot of what I'm doing. It's like, let's tell the history realistically, not because we want people not to like America, but because you can't solve problems if you don't recognize where they came from. And oh, solving problems good. is more important than feeling super great uh, about you know, the, the country you happen to live in. Yeah. You've also done some work on the church and particularly our tribe of evangelicalism um, on the church's rise sort of to political power, embrace of political power. But lately, th there there have been some crossover between these two streams of, okay, you know, America certainly has a racist past. 
Um, and the church has been very complicit in that. And so I was wondering yeah. if you could spend, I know you guys have done some, some work on the podcast on this, but I think it's, it's so helpful to hear how evangelicalism as an ism evolved um, from, um, you know, its earliest movements away from sort of liberalism um, into this, well, I mean, because I literally, I posted, and I'm not a big social media person, but I, I posted something just after the debates mm -hmm. saying, you know, it, it, this shouldn't be too controversial, but um, white supremacy is antichrist and Christians should be its loudest opponents. Yeah. Mm. And, yeah, and, and, mm. and the first comment was on abortion. And first comment, first freaking comment was on abortion but, but but abortion yes and then it turned into well who's more racist biden or uh trump and so mm -hmm. it was it was mm -hmm. completely disheartening yeah um but but i wondered if you would rehearse for us a little bit of the history for how it is that we ended up um a as a uh, um a, a church culture that played a very big part in the oppression of black people but then B, how it is that, that that, even acknowledging that gets trumped by this whole abortion issue. Yeah. And mm -hmm. um, you know what I mean? Like that's the only right. thing the church wants to talk about. So right. Yeah, right. any thoughts that way would be great. Okay, so you gotta go back to the fundamentalist modernist controversy uh, from roughly 1890 <laughs> to 1930, where modernist theology was coming over from and Europe. And you were, you were alive. Yes, yeah, during I, was this a, time. I was a culture warrior at the time. I had yes. a podcast already. Um, <laughs> we called and, it a pigeon cast, but yes. And, and one, of, one of the things that happened in that controversy, because modernists were starting to throw out really important tenets of historical faith, like who, the Bible is without errors, that's mm -hmm. ridiculous. It's, you know, let's treat it like any other book. Yeah. Do we really believe in the virgin birth? Come on, this is, we have radio now. I was literally one theologian <laughs> said, how can we believe in the virgin birth in an era of electric light and radio? Because obviously- That's fair, that's a fair point. Radio disproves uh, virgin birth. <laughs> I'm still wrestling with that one. So the 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 reaction was fierce. Obviously, yeah, it was yeah. a war. You know, it split whole denominations. It split churches. Um, one of the things that happened out of that that was unfortunate is that modernists, which kind of turned into uh, mainline, you know, mainline Protestantism, is either became modernist or accommodated modernists. Um, modernists started to question the value of conversion in missions. Like mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. great that we're helping people around the world, but why are we trying to, you know, force them all to change and become Christians? Yeah. But, and so there was actually a report, so we need to stop that. And it was in mm. some of the you know, top missionary sending groups of Presbyterianism and some other major denominations where they said, we recommend missionaries no longer convert people, mm -hmm. but simply work for their social benefit. Mm. And so fundamentalists reacted the other way, said, no, 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 no. Actually, conversion is the whole point. That's what we want to work towards is conversion. And, yeah. and this split about the social gospel, this is where, you know, so, so modernists said, no, we want to promote a gospel that is about social equality and social progress. Uh, fundamentalists said, no, we're promoting the gospel that says you follow Jesus and you, you know, you're forgiven for your sins and he atoned for your, your sins on the cross. And so fundamentalists stopped 
caring about social issues nearly as much mm. um, because it was considered modern. You're a mm. modernist mm. if you care about social issues. And that led to a kind of a pulling back, pulling away from culture. It was about the same time that uh, fundamentalists all embraced um, premillennialism. So mm. most evangelicals had been post-millennial throughout the 19th century, which said, you know, hey, we're headed towards a time where we're going to have a thousand years of Christian peace and prosperity, and then Jesus is going to come back. And a big part of making that happen is social reform. So mm. all evangelicals were, were fighting for social reform. You know, we got to get rid of yeah. alcohol. We got to get rid yeah. of prostitution, child labor. That's terrible. Uh, uh, abusing animals. That's horrible. We, evangelicals were fighting for all of those things mm. um, until we switched to premillennialism and said, actually, mm -hmm. the world's just going to hell in a handbag and Jesus is going to come back and fix it. Sure. So and we're out of here screw that yes. <laughs> and that's where that's where fundamentalist theologians started saying that all this social stuff is like polishing the brass on the titanic yeah. was a was a quote yep. so we yep. pulled away from the social stuff modernists became the main line who cared about the social stuff um and then as so as african-american issues come up the african-american church did not split like that primarily mm. because neither side of the white church wanted them to come along Mm. <laughs> it's like we don't we don't really mm. want you over here and then the main line says well you have your own denominations you're fine so african-american churches never had the the uh, privilege of not having to care about social issues mm. because this was all happening at the same time as the kkk was at its right. peak mm. you know so think about that and churches wow. being burned and people being burned you did not have the the privilege of saying we only care about gospel issues yeah. We don't care about social <laughs> issues because the guys in the white pointy hats are coming yeah. for your church right now. Yeah. Um, and we just, you know, and then because fundamentalism was kind of headquartered in the South, which was still mm. very segregationist, racism and fundamentalism kind of got tangled up in, in rather distasteful ways. You know, with Bob mm. Jones University being a great example of not only, you know, you will find no modernists here, you will find no Darwinists here, and you will find no black people just so you're comfortable coming to Bob Jones University. And that lasted in some form or another until the year 2000, some yeah. restrictions you know, <laughs> against what blacks could or couldn't do. So that made the evangelical church, especially in the South, uh, fairly complicit with mm. maintaining the status quo. So when uh, you know Martin Luther King comes along and he's preaching about equality, it was, and this is in the middle of the Cold War, and this is right after the McCarthy, theism and i think you know people that preach about equality are marxist mm. and we probably should mm. keep an eye on them so the cia has a file on martin luther king and they're pulling in civil rights leaders to testify in front of the committee on un-american activities you know were you a card-carrying communist at any point in your life uh, so a lot of conservative christians like me and you and our parents and our grandparents were very uncomfortable uh, agreeing with the civil rights movement because it was painted as Marxist. Hmm. Does wow. that sound familiar? Hmm. <laughs> it's exactly where we are today with conservative Christians saying, I can't march with Black Lives Matter because I heard that's Marxist. And hmm. I can't be, I can be, you know, the only thing worse than being racist is being Marxist. So <laughs> I cannot go out there because my friends will think I'm Marxist. Hmm. So we, we ended up getting tangled up with a, a huge culture war where, a fear of communism and fear mm. of integration 
all got wrapped together and anyone who wanted to integrate racially was probably also a communist and needed to be opposed. And it really mm -hmm. did damage to the church and to the witness of the church. You know, and if you ask today, why do almost all white conservative Christians vote Republican and almost all black conservative Christians vote Democrat? It's all wrapped up mm. in who was, who was afraid of what and what mm. were we afraid mm. of more? And African-Americans were more afraid of not being able to vote. We were more afraid of that. I think that people that are worried about not being able to vote are probably communists. Mm. <laughs> and we need to oppose that. So it's a big mess. But Oh, uh, my goodness. Yeah, How and did... it's theology, eschatology all played a role in yeah. our um, reluctance to help fight for justice. How, how did the abortion issue become the focal point of evangelical efforts for justice? And beyond that, we don't care about much. Yeah. Uh, um, Jerry Falwell Sr. was entirely opposed to political activism for Christians in the 1960s. Thought it was wrong. It distracted from the gospel. Yeah, it was the classic fundamentalist position. Um, he also started what you call today a segregation academy, which is mm. a private school for white parents who are frustrated that their public school has been integrated. And they popped up all over the South, hundreds of them. So he mm. started one in Lynchburg, uh, Virginia. Unfortunate name, that. Yes, that is. It was a man named Lynch. Not an activity at the, t at the time it was named. Um, so he had a segregationist academy. Um, he was close friends with Bob Jones Jr. and Bob Jones University. In 1974, the IRS filed a lawsuit against Bob Jones University saying, if you do not integrate your school, you're in violation of the Civil Rights Act. Even though you're a private school, we still believe you're in violation of the Civil Rights Act, and we're going to reject your uh, tax-exempt status as an institution, which puts your, you know, for a church or a school to lose your tax exempt status really messes with your finances. Uh, the Jones family believed in segregation so much that they still wouldn't integrate and they actually lost their tax exempt status. Then the IRS turned to all these segregation academies and says, and we're going to apply the same standard to you. If you don't take intentional steps to integrate, you're going to lose your tax exempt status, which would have put most of them out of business that's when the moral majority was started. That was actually mm. the impetus for Jerry Falwell Sr. and Paul Weyrich, his, his partner, to start the moral majority, um, saying we have to get active in politics again. We can't sit on the sideline. If the federal government can come and tell us how to run our private institutions, then we're really not free to practice our religion. Mm. And unfortunately, segregation was a big part of their religion at that point. Mm. So can we, wait, can we pause right there for a second? Yes. Without you losing your train? Because I just think that there's such this train of thought, because um, you guys did this really well on your podcast, this uh, back and forth between the fundamentalist and the evangelical movement and the way that those splits happen and how this, where you're leading right now. Hey guys, I forgot about this. My wife is supposed to be doing something on Zoom with a church in 10 minutes <laughs> okay. and she's texting me. We don't I, listen. listen. I know. We, so, we don't want you in trouble, Phil. I need to take a break and we need to finish this later this afternoon. Is that possible? Yeah, we'll figure out something. Okay. We'll do, we'll do part one. I scheduled this apparently not coordinating with her. 
that Shocking. Never happens to us. That never has happened <laughs> yes. ever in so the history of marriage. Hold that thought right where you were. Hey folks, uh, we're back after a brief hiatus. Mike has disappeared somewhere into the ether, so we wish him... Phil messed it up. Oh man. My wife had to take over my office for an online class that she was teaching that I forgot all about and (laughs) I almost killed her class. So we had to take a break and then we lost Mike. He just... It happens sometimes. He just drifted off. Um, but we were, we're having a conversation on race and, um, kind of the history in our country, the history in our church. And, uh, Mike had just asked a question about abortion and kind of how that has become like the sole issue that we, yeah. And I hadn't quite gotten to that point yet. I was about to get to that point because the moral majority as, as we talked about really came about when the IRS filed a lawsuit against Bob Jones University, and it became clear that the federal government was not going to let conservative Southern Christians run private institutions however they wanted to, if the way they were running them violated the Civil Rights Act. And at that point, the, uh, so that was the birth of the religious right, which then needed more, wanted to get all Christians into it, not just Southern uh, segregationist Christians into it. And the way to do that, they needed an issue that appealed to the whole country. And this is about the time that uh, Dr. James Dobson started preaching on the radio and he was not a Southern Christian. He was a Western Christian from California, um, and he picked up the abortion thing. Um, C. Everett Koop, the Surgeon General of the United States, wrote a book with Fran- uh, Francis Schaefer, also picking up mm. on the abortion thing. And this yeah. is 7980. So this is actually, you know, seven years after Roe v. Wade. But all of a sudden, everybody said, hey, wait a minute, abortion, that's bad. And that became the issue that brought together Southern fundamentalists and Northern evangelicals into one political coalition that now at that time, uh, Gallup did a survey. Everyone was trying to figure out how to define evangelical. Gallup decided the way to define it was anyone who says they've been born again is an evangelical. Hmm. So the Gallup did a survey and 50% of Americans said they were born again. So 50% of Americans said they were evangelical. So for the religious right, this was huge because they could go around saying we represent half of America and their number one issue is abortion. And that's how uh, really abortion is what consolidated that voting block. Uh, and it's kind of how we got to where we are today. Yeah, it's. Uh, I wanted to highlight a few of the things um, that you go into much more detail on in your video, but I think that um, I think not everybody is super familiar with kind of some of the big tenets that. So we don't want to. We we said earlier that we were avoiding the term systemic racism. It's a historic. Yeah, it's, it's definitely it's in a, unequivocally a historic reality. Whether it still applies today is and is an as accurate term to use today is very controversial. And a yeah. lot of people will just tune out once you start saying it. it right. 
exists. But there are definitely some systems that were put into place that... That had massive impact and that impact continues to ripple through generations. Right. So uh, when we look at... I think it's interesting because I the... Uh, some of the stuff you just said. Well, so after the f- slaves are freed, we have, and y- like I said, you go into much more detail in this. So I'm just going to like kind of hit a couple buttons shortly. But I think this lineage, for lack of a better term, is a is important. And I'm not sure that everybody in our audience is fully aware of all these kind of dates and things that hit. And I think they're really important to know when we're talking about this topic today because there is a whole through line that kind of led us to where we are. And I think that it's good to have this data to understand why, you know, things things are the way they are, why where we're at. So after the slaves were freed, we had something called vagrancy laws come into effect. Yeah, after Reconstruction and federal troops left the South, a whole raft of laws were passed to try to return, in some cases, the white minority, because there there were many counties in the South where whites actually were the minority after the Civil War, which meant they lost political power. If you're Mm. now a minority, and the majority can vote, that's trouble. So one, and also they needed a labor force again. They just lost their labor force. So right. there were vagrancy laws, which basically said, if you don't have a job, you can be arrested. You can be arrested right. for not having a job. And then when you're arrested, we're going to rent you out to plantations to work as laborers and the money comes back to the, the, the government or a tiny bit goes to the laborer. Right. So many men found themselves right back on the plantations again. Which is wild. So freed from the plantations, arrested for not being able to work, put back on the plantations, and in some cases a little bit worse because they were leased and they could be replaced. So in yeah. some senses, it was a worse scenario than you didn't the want your one. if you owned your labor force, you didn't want them to die. Right. If you leased your labor force, you didn't care as much. Right. So this leads into Jim Crow, which becomes a legal segregation and uh the Supreme Court upholds this idea of legal segregation because, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think this is how you said it, it reflected the customs and traditions yeah. of America, which is wild. Yes, it was basically <laughs> saying this This is just the way it is. Yeah. And we don't want to turn society upside down. So right. don't mess with it. Yeah. And, that, and so then we get to the 50s. We get to Brown versus Board of Education, desegregating schools. Southern Manifesto is written to uphold Jim Crow. um, All Democrats in the South were, not all, most Democrats in the South were very conservative and and pro-segregation. Democrats in the North were becoming increasingly urban and more liberal. So both parties had liberal and, and progressive wings up until about 1970, 1975. So Southern Democrats were trying to block all civil rights legislation, basically put things back the way they were before, you know, before uh, the Abraham Lincoln messed their lives up so much. Um, and that went on for 20 or 30 years of trying to resist all that change until finally, you know, uh, Johnson, President Johnson, following Kennedy's lead, said, no, we're going to pass major civil rights uh, legislation and it was was uh, progressive Republicans and Northern Democrats that came together to pass all of that stuff, um, and that is what led many Southern Democrats to say, "Well, I'm done being a Democrat," and and the South started turning from blue to red over hmm. the next twenty twenty five years. And that Southern Manifesto era 
helped lead to this idea of segregation academies, which is something that you just brought up. Brown, yeah, Brown versus Board of Education. If our public schools uh, have to be integrated, well, then that's a simple solution. We'll just pull all of our white kids out of the public schools. You know, and there, right. were, there was an area of Mississippi where the local public schools in one year had 750 white kids. The second year had like 30 white kids. The third year had zero white kids because their parents pulled them all out and put them in private Christian schools. So in the Bob Jones University, for example, doesn't allow black students much later after all of this. Till 1970, they had to start allowing some black students, but only if you were married. They didn't want single right. black students come because they might be tempted to, to meet date. a white girl right. and date across racial lines. 1976 is when they finally gave in on that because they were being sued by the IRS, but then they still kept a law, a, a requirement, there's no interracial dating, and that rule stayed in place until 2000, when George Bush Jr. gave a speech at Bob Jones University, and everyone kind of remembered, hey, wait a minute, you guys still don't allow interracial dating, and the PR was so bad. In the year 2000. 2000. Yeah, that's wild. Uh, and then, so I'm just trying to do a loose run through history here, American history. Civil rights protests, anti-war protests lead to a big um, law and order rhetoric, which is something we heard the other night in the debates yes. repeated over and over again. Law yes. and order, law and order. That you had, you had the anti-war protesters that were sometimes becoming violent, and then you had the civil rights protesters who were sometimes t becoming violent when you had, um, when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, led to riots across the country, destruction of private property, burning of buildings. We really don't like that. The number one issue in the 1968 presidential campaign was violence, which uh, most Americans blamed on two groups, and some put those two groups together, um, communists and Negroes who start riots. Right. And because many Negroes who started riots were suspected of really being secret communists, uh, that's, we've lumped it all together. And that's where Nixon and others came in and said, what you really want, America, you want law and order, which started the use of that phrase as what's considered a sort of dog whistle for you want us to crack down on all those African-Americans that are out of control in the cities. Yeah. And so um, the Southern churches, I mean, you guys had a really good episode where you did a um, big breakdown of the difference between fundamentalist and evangelical. Yeah. That was a really great conversation. Turning that one into a video too. Oh, nice. Great. Because that was very informational. I think a lot of people, again, I shared that with a bunch of people and I think they were like, I was not aware that this was what it was yep. and so yep so we won't spoil that too much um <laughs> yeah there was it was that goes back to the the uh modernist fundamentalist controversy around the yes. turn of the, the 20th century and fundamentalists were hanging on to the bible modernists were kind of well you know this part doesn't make any sense this part doesn't make any sense and fundamentalists clutched the bible so close that they just started ignoring everything else everything else and then there was a middle way a third way uh, uh, that was called the neo-evangelical way where and billy graham was the face of neo-evangelicalism that said we we, we don't um, we want to hold to a high view of the Bible like our fundamentalist brothers and sisters, but we don't want to turn our backs on the world. We don't want to turn our backs on science and the life of the mind. Um, and 
so like our modernist friends. So we want to be in the middle. We want to create a third way. And they called that neo-evangelicalism. And it was you know, Fuller Seminary was a neo-evangelical school. Wheaton College was one of the birthplaces of neo-evangelicalism. Uh, Billy Graham became the face of neo-evangelicalism. Christianity Today magazine was the mouthpiece of neo-evangelicalism. And so there were three strands of Protestantism in North America for about 50 years. There was mainline Protestant, uh, neo-evangelical, and then fundamentalist. And what happened with the uh, rise of the religious right in the 70s and 80s is that basically the fundamentalists re-entered politics, dropped the name fundamentalist. No one calls themselves a fundamentalist anymore. Right. Have you ever met a fundamentalist? No, they, <laughs> oh, they're still here. Uh, assumed the name of evangelical, and that became now a blanket term for all conservative Christians, which completely destroyed, you know, that middle way of, of what right. Harold, uh, Harold Ockengay was the guy who started new evangelicalism, what he and Billy Graham and others were trying to do just got wiped out by Jerry Falwell Jr. or Sr., James Dobson and others who just said, we're all evangelicals, 50% of America is evangelicals, and we're going to elect the next president. Now, does that, you, the, you, the uniting, uniting the clans, Yes. Like them coming together and, and that and it, in a lot of ways happens around the issue of abortion. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the the idea of the issue of abortion and the idea that America was generally in a steep moral decline and we are the moral majority. Right. Most Americans don't like, and it was feminism, um, you know, it was gay rights, which was starting to pop up here and there, and then abortion. So those things, the sexual revolution, the gay rights revolution, um, women's lib, uh, abortion were all kind of symptoms of the same disease, which is America's going to hell in a handbag. And it was, you know, the, the moral majority and the, Christ, the silent Christians who've been silent too long, we're <laughs> back that uh, led to the religious right and uh, put Reagan in the White House and really radically redrew the political map, turned the South from bright blue to bright red, uh, turned most of America bright red. Uh, and so now when you look at a map, it's mostly red, a map of America, but it's red where there are n not many people mm. and it's blue where there are a lot of people. So it's, it's just radically how much uh, conservative Christianity has affected American politics in the last 50 years is just astonishing. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so interesting. I don't know that I was that aware of, um, the churches clinging to the segregation argument leading up to the abortion argument when they kind of felt, and that's my understanding, right? That they're, they're, clinging to segregation. No one liked Billy Graham showing up and saying they're, yeah. everybody could be in the tent together. The Well, uh, they didn't like Billy Graham because, not as much because he integrated his rallies, which he did, um, but even more so because he, he invited modernist churches to join in his rallies. And modernists were the enemy. You know, they were undermining scripture. They were undermining everything. So um, when Billy Graham came to Charlotte, North Carolina to, to put on a rally in 1966, that's the uh, hometown of Bob Jones University, not Charlotte. Um, I, I forget where Bob Jones, but it's in North Carolina. 
Bob Jones Jr. at that time gave an interview for the local paper saying no one is doing more harm to the cause of Jesus Christ than Billy Graham. <laughs> and, and said, if any of my students, if any Bob Jones University students attend the Billy Graham rally, they'll be expelled from school. That's wild. So, you know, people, so, so there's an old joke. It's a fun old joke. Um, if you're mainline, if you're liberal, you think Billy Graham is a fundamentalist. If you're a fundamentalist, you think Billy Graham is a heretic. <laughs> uh, and that shows that there were three strains of Protestantism at that time. And they collapsed back down to two about 1975, 1976, 1976, Jimmy Carter becomes president uh, because he says, and he's the first president to say, I'm born again. I'm a born again Christian. So all these, you know, 50% of Americans that say they're born again, say, yes, he's with us. And rather than saying this is, it's the year of the fundamentalist returning to politics, Newsweek magazine ran a cover story that declared 1976 was the year of the evangelical. Right. And so that became the moniker to put on all conservative Christians. They're not fundamentalists anymore. They're evangelicals. And it completely blurred the distinction between what Billy Graham stood for and what Bob Jones Sr. and Jr. stood for and why Bob Jones Jr. thought Billy Graham was doing more damage to the cause of Jesus Christ than any other person on earth. Hmm. Crazy, huh? Isn't that crazy? <laughs> it is all crazy. It's crazy. It's sad. This it's... is our inheritance. This yes. is what you and I now grow up in this stew, this bubbling stew of, hi, what kind of Christian am I? Right. I don't, I'm not, which, what? I know I'm not Catholic because we didn't grow up that way. So I guess I'm evangelical. And what does that mean? Because, you know, is Bob Jones Sr. an evangelical? And is Jerry Falwell Jr. an evangelical? And are these t Southern televangelists evangelicals? Is that what I am? Yeah. So many kids have just said, I'm out. Yeah. You know, I can't make sense of this mess. I'm out. I'm spiritual, but not religious. Yeah. It's just a hot mess. So I think that's exactly... Perfect. That's exactly where we find ourselves today. Um, you know, Mike, we did an episode, I don't know, six, eight months ago, maybe or so, kind of landing in this idea of spiritual homelessness. Yeah. That so many of us are just like, I just don't under, I don't, I don't like, I don't resonate with this other side of the fence or, or any of these things. I can't find my tribe. Yeah, and I can't reconcile things that I see and hear to who I've found Jesus to be and what I've heard and seen Jesus say. Yeah. Um, I think we don't, you know, for the sake of time, we won't go th all the way into the abortion issue. And I, I know that Sky did a really great um, Twitter rant breakdown Yeah. that you guys are maybe following up on. Which may or may not be a rehearsal for a video. We're good. Yeah. So stay tuned for that because it's, I think it's really important Um that you don't that it's it, it's an issue that pulls everybody to one side of the fence and negates so much else right um, and, and the base the premise of of what sky was trying to get across is what other conservative pro-life voices like david french and recently michael gerson uh, michael gerson just yesterday in the washington post had a piece where i said yes i'm pro-life and no i'm not voting for donald trump mm. and here's here's how i put that together um you know and and in a nutshell it's just arguing that the who's in the White House actually has very little impact on abortion rates in America. Right. So the notion that if we just get enough 
Republican presidents to nominate enough conservative justices, right. abortion will become illegal and will go away. Yeah. And a lot of people who know how the Supreme Court works and how law works are looking at that saying, you know, that's probably not true. Right. And so that's one of the main reasons we want to do this conversation is because everything is so emotionally charged right now. Yeah. Politics are so emotionally charged right now. Abortion is an issue that has always been emotionally charged. And to bring data in, and if we can have a conversation where we're like, look, we're not speaking down on anybody. We're just bringing some statistics and data and history to look at how things actually played out and where they went and where they led. And the abortion conversation is the same thing, like you said, that the president doesn't seem like it really has that big of an impact on it. Neither does, I think uh, Sky said something like, uh, Republicans have nominated 11 Supreme Court justices and yep, to, um, four to four for Democrats. Right. And we still don't have any more positive decisions from the Supreme Court on abortion. Yeah. In fact, the decisions in the last 40 years have made it stronger, uh, the protection for, for access to abortion with the Casey ruling, you know, which stands, it, you can't even go back to and try to overthrow Roe v. Wade. Now you have to overthrow Casey. Um, which was in 1992, I think. So, there, and at the same time, though, before you lose heart, because I am pro-life and I do care, right now the abortion rate is lower than it's been since 1972, the year before Roe v. Wade was passed. So if our goal in trying to take the Supreme Court is to undo the damage of Roe v. Wade, we've already done that, which is yeah. kind of astonishing. Yeah, so a lot of people are, are pushing that we can't stop working on this issue until there's zero abortion in America, which has never been the case ever. There was, there was more abortion before Roe v. Wade on a, on a per thousand women, per thousand birth basis than there is today. So undoing Roe v. Wade does very little about that. It's just, yeah. it's a whole side of the story that we just don't talk about. We don't, and it's hard because it is so emotionally charged and it immediately becomes um, just full very of vitriol and yeah. So I think that um, that'll be great to push people in that direction to, to read his tweets, to watch the video if you guys follow through with that. and. Um, there is so much to learn just by kind of listening. And I think that's really it, right? Right now it's yeah. trying to listen. Um, we've been in a posture of trying to listen for the last few months. And then in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, looking at how it is that we should be engaging our world, our community, and our neighbor and right. ourself within all these things. And I think it's just trying to understand how different Christians with different life experiences can come to radically different conclusions about yes. how they should vote. Yes. Because we keep saying, you know, all Christians are on the right and vote Republican. Well, no, 80% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. 92% of black Protestants voted for Hillary Clinton. Hmm. So 3%, this is in Pew Research on validated voters, 3% of black Protestants, self-identifying black Christians voted for Donald Trump. So you ask, okay, how can white Christians and black Christians view the world so differently that they would be that far off on, you know, I read the Bible, I pray to God, and we just vote in opposite directions. And, yeah. and to me, it's a case of what do you see when you look in the rearview mirror? Because a lot of Christians say, I want things like they were in the 50s. Yeah. You know, why can't we, before women's Make liberation, again. 
Yes, before Roe v. Wade, before all this bad stuff happened, why can't we go back there? And when we look in the rearview mirror, we see happy families running out of church with their kids, <laughs> going to school where they could pray in school and not being able to get an abortion and having no gender confusion about what bathroom you're going you're to use. When African-Americans look in the rearview mirror to the 1950s, they see fire hoses and German shepherds being unleashed on them in church bombings and lynchings. Yeah. So who wants to go backward and who wants to go forward? And when you say, okay, why, why do black Christians vote for progressive politicians? Well, because they, they have the sense of that's how we've gotten to where we are is by progressing and progressing. we need to keep going. White yeah. Christians vote for conservative politicians because we say we're losing all the things we love. We need to conserve what we have left and go backwards. That doesn't mean any of us is reading the Bible wrong. It just right. means we're taking a very different historical experience as we look through what we really want to value. Oof. Yeah. So I hope that this conversation is, I don't know if encouraging is the right word, but is enlightening. I think it's encouraging because the younger generation of even just evangelical Christians is much more, is growing up in a more diverse world with more yes. diverse friends. Yes. And they're in, they're in a better situation to hear stories that are significantly different than their own stories Yeah, and make decisions that are based on a more uh, pluralistic view of Christianity. Yeah. As Mike That's would say. That's encouraging to me. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. I thought he was here for a second. That Just was for it. one second. Um, Phil, thank you for coming You're on welcome. and sharing your wisdom. And I, I do hope that this is encouraging for folks and especially in this season as we're in the last 30 days of a very contentious political season, maybe not the last 30 days, but leading yeah. up to an election thereof. Um, but that we can continue to have these conversations and listen to our neighbors and learn what it really means to love our neighbors in this time period. And um, yeah, thank you so much for popping in. Thanks fun. for having me. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Mike, wherever you are. <laughs> we'll see you guys next week. Thank you for listening to this conversation. The Vox Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash voxpodcast. You can also engage with the hosts on social media at facebook.com backslash voxpodcast, on Instagram at voxpodcast, and on Twitter at Mike Erie. Thank you for walking this road with us.